Today we're going to be in Acts chapter 19. If you have your Bible, let's open up there. And if you don't have a Bible, um, you can raise your hand and they'll bring one to you because there's nothing like following along on your Bible. Some of you guys here, you might do it on your phone, but you got to be careful because then you get phony when you do stuff like that on your phone. (laughs) Next thing you know, you're getting a text message and you're tempted to go to Facebook and all that kind of stuff. And so... Anyways, Acts 19, this is a life-changing study. I mean, I'm serious. This is an opportunity for you to receive power from on high. This is a special study. If you want to be a special church, if you want to kind of be that special Christian, I want to encourage you right now to lift up your antennas, to open up your heart, because what we're going to read today is one of the most amazing portions of Scripture that really, it really challenges us uh, and pulls us out of that place where a lot of times we end up settling in uh, as a nominal Christian, as a casual Christian. And God forbid that any of us would ever want to settle for that type of life. God wants to do something supernatural in us. God wants to make his work so powerful in us that when people look at your life, it's going to be evident. It will be undeniable. That person has God in their life. That's how we should be living as Christians, not blending in, but we should be completely different as the disciples of Jesus Christ. But you can't do it on your own strength. You can do this, though, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's why this study is so important. Okay, so I know a lot of times you come in and you check out while you're here and you're kind of thinking of other things. Do me a favor, man. Have a hunger and thirst for God. Have a hunger and thirst for his word right now because this can change your life. This is exactly what you've been longing for. That's why it was so cool that they sang that song, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Holy Spirit, fill the atmosphere because that's what we need. He's what we need. And so we pick it up now in Acts 19. Notice what we read in verse 1, and it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And so we'll we'll pause there. Apollos is now at Corinth. Paul is in the beginning stages, remember, of his third missionary journey. Um, In Acts 18, 22, and 23, we saw he went up from Antioch, he went through Phrygia and Galatia, he's kind of strengthening the churches, and then he just keeps going. If you were to look at a map, I think we might have a map here to show you. I'm not sure if we do or not. Do we have a map? Yeah, can you guys see that? You'll notice on the right side is Antioch of Syria. He goes north, and then he goes west. Uh, He hits Phrygia, Galatia, and then he continues to go west until he reaches the great city of Ephesus. You know, first Jerusalem, then Antioch, then here he arrives in Ephesus. This is a place that he wanted to reach for many years. It was a place in modern-day Turkey, and it was uh, one of the largest and most influential and impressive cities in the ancient world. It was a political and religious and commercial center in Asia Minor, that would eventually play a significant role in the spread of Christianity. It would be kind of like, you know, someone going and tackling New York and saying, I want New York for Christ. I want New York because I want God to do a new work 
And, you know, it would be like that, getting a hold of that city and Times Square, and then from there, spreading the gospel. That's kind of Paul's vision here. You see, Ephesus was ideal for sea trade because it was just right there off the Aegean Sea. It was accessed by the harbor and a couple of rivers on each side of the city. And besides being perfectly situated for sea trade, Ephesus was also connected by major roads and highways. And so in Paul's day, Ephesus was the fourth largest city in the world. You know, it was there with a population, and it varies. You read different sources. Some say 300,000. Some say as high as 500,000 citizens were there in Ephesus. It had been declared the capital of Asia Minor, where there was a large colony of Jews. It was a wealthy city. It had an amphitheater of 24,000 seats carved into the rock of the hillside. I think we also have a visual of that. We want to show you the amphitheater. Because who knows, maybe one day we'll do the tour of the footsteps of Paul, and we'll be able to visit this amphitheater. And so can you imagine how awesome it must have been to live in Ephesus in those days, the theaters were free because they would use those theaters, you know, to influence the population and the masses. And you would go there for concerts. You would go there for theatrical performances. You would go there for political and religious um, get-togethers. You would go there to see the, the guys fight, the gladiators, and sometimes even the animals. But there we see the theater was magnificent. But the interesting thing is the city's uh, theater wasn't the main claim to fame. The thrust of its claim and economy was the magnificent temple of Artemis, also known as Diana. And one time, if you guys remember, it was considered one of the seven wonders of the world. And so we have a visual of that as well. You know, they discovered this not that long ago in the late 1800s. And now they're able to kind of reconstruct the temple. And there you see how magnificent it was. It was uh, there, seven wonders of the world, along the categories of the Egyptian uh, pyramids, the hanging gardens of Babylon, and things like that. It, it was 117 columns, 60 feet tall. It housed the figure of uh, Diana, who was a local fertile deity, which they believed to have fallen from heaven. The temple, considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, was legendary in its beauty and its wealth. The temple served Asia as a bank so that even kings would come and apply for loans from this place. And so we're going to see as we go through this chapter hundreds of silversmiths, innkeepers, owners of restaurants and shops prospered because of the multitudes who flocked there each year to visit the temple. And so it was a happening city. It was rich, man. It was religious, right? But it was also ripe. Because what you find in life is that money and you know the riches and all the religion that this world has to offer can never fill the void within. The void within can only be fulfilled by the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, the true and living God. And that's why when Paul ends up going there to Ephesus, it's ripe, it's the perfect time, and God does such a wonderful work. You know, we're going to see for many years, Ephesus would then be instrumental in spreading the gospel under the leadership of Paul and then Timothy and eventually John the Beloved for many years. And as we'll see this morning, the work that started there in Ephesus, it all began right here with one man 
with one man who was willing to go to this city, a man who loved and labored so hard for the Lord, and he is an example to us. Because when Paul came to Ephesus, he found some disciples. And notice again, we read in verse 1, it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul came to Ephesus, and we read that there, and in finding some disciples. You know, apparently, these guys called themselves disciples. Uh, maybe even others referred to them as disciples. You know, I don't know how it would work. Ephesus was a big city. So Paul goes into the city, and you guys know that he would usually enter the synagogue, right? And so there were multiple synagogues in Ephesus. Apparently, you know, I'm not sure exactly how it all ends up, but maybe he asks around, hey, are there any disciples here? Any disciples are here? Oh, yeah, there's some disciples over there. And then Paul, what happens, he gets to know them and he finds out, you know what? There's something missing in their life. These guys might go to church, but there is nothing different about them. These guys might go to the synagogue, but man, it doesn't look to me like they're really saved. How do you know that? Because you spend some time with people. Understand, coming to church, it doesn't mean you're saved. Is there something different about your life? Do you have the love of the Lord Jesus Christ in your life? Do you ever evangelize people? Do you have a heart to serve? I mean, when someone is saved, when someone is spirit-filled, you will see it in their life. And it's not a religion. It's a relationship. And so when Paul finds these disciples, it's interesting. Look what happens in verse 2. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, well, into what then were you baptized? And so they said to him, into John's baptism. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him. That is on Christ Jesus. You see, these disciples, these so-called disciples, had only gone as far as John. And now Paul's you know, coming to them and saying, hey, you need to, to move on. You know? They were probably baptized by John in the River Jordan, a baptism of repentance. Remember, maybe in the early stages when John was there, but they needed to do more than that. They needed to do more than repent. They needed to believe and receive the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, and so John the Baptist, he prepared the way. He pointed to Christ who is the way. And then the cool thing is he got out of the way. He said, listen, you need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He must increase. I must decrease. And here's my prayer today. Because I don't know where you guys are in your walk, relationship with the Lord. Some of you are right on. Some of you love Jesus. Some of you are living for the Lord. Some of you aren't. Some of you are half-hearted. Some of you are just religious. And some of you here, you might not even really know the Lord. You've only gone as far as John, so to speak. And you need to move on. What, what John did is he did a baptism of preparation. Maybe you're here today and my prayer is that your heart is prepared, that you're ready now. You're ready to go forward. You're ready to dive in. You're ready to give your life to the Lord. It has to go beyond the preparation. It has to go to salvation. And then there'll be that baptism that's proper, that baptism of declaration. You know, these guys were ready. They had the baptism of preparation, 
There was a genuine repentance, but they hadn't yet placed their faith in Christ. And so Paul tells them, well, that was the whole point of the ministry of John. You know, I think a good place to turn to would be John chapter 1. And if you guys would turn there, you'll see the whole point of this guy, John the Baptist. In in verse 19 of John chapter 1, it says, Now this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? You know, the the Jews were all uh, living in expectation, anticipation of Elijah, the prophet, you know, of these guys coming. Are you the Christ? And and he said, well, I'm none of those. And so they are, who are you? Because we got to go back to Jerusalem and give an account as far as what's going on here. And he said to them uh, in verse 23, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. And, And what that means, make straight the way of the Lord is... You know, don't let anything get in the way because he's on his way. He's coming over to your house. Is there anything in the way? Get rid of it, especially in your heart. It was a prophecy from Isaiah. And so in verse 24, now those who were sent were from the Pharisees. And they asked him saying, well, why then do you baptize if you're not the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? That prophet is uh, prophesied in Deuteronomy chapter 18. They were all expecting him to come. And John answered them saying, listen, I baptize with water. But there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to lose. You see, he's saying, I'm baptizing with water, but there's another one. He's alive already. He's about to come. He's the one, right? And, And so we read in verse 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, John had gone baptizing. Uh, He was commissioned by the Father, and the Father told him this. He says, when the Messiah comes, when the Christ comes, you're going to see him, and the Spirit will descend upon him like a dove. And so John's out there for we don't know how long. Thousands of people come because they know it's a prophet there in, in the River Jordan, and they're coming, and they're you know, getting baptized, and they're confessing their sins, and they're repenting. As John is saying, the Christ is about to come. He's going to come. And then one day, we don't know how long, it was months down the road, eventually Jesus came. And when Jesus came, John the Baptist said, there he is, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, and, and John, just like all of us here, he was just a point man. But these guys in Ephesus, they had missed the point. And apparently there was something going on there. Apollos kind of had the same problem. And people, sometimes they just kind of go so far, and God says, no, you need to move on all the way. Thank God that John was a point man, and so was Paul, And after he met these guys and he assessed their spiritual geography, he knew, man, something's missing in their lives. They were not Christian disciples. 
They were just disciples of John. They were just disciples of men. They were just works of men, and they needed to become works of God. And so what does he do? He leads them to the Lord. And we read there in verse 5 that they believe. It says in verse 5 again, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's an interesting story. It really is going to Ephesus, finding disciples, seeing that there is no power in their life, seeing that they're just acting like anybody else. There's nothing special about them. They don't seem to stand out as disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he asks them, hey, man, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And I'll tell you what, that's a good question. You know, you might want to come today and go to church and say, hey, Manny, I think you're being a little bit too uh, pushy today. You can if you want. It doesn't matter what you say about me. But you have to ask yourself that question. I have to ask myself that question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Because if he's not in you, then you're not a Christian. And if he's not on you, then you're just still walking in your own strength. And this was huge to Paul. It was, it was something that not just for like a special sect of the saints, it was something for everybody to experience. You know, we can walk on water. We can move mountains. We don't have to get high or drunk. We don't have to cuss or look at porn. We can love our wife. We can love our kids. We can work as unto the Lord. We can serve the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have to waste our time and waste our life serving this world. When the Holy Spirit gets a hold of a person, they're a different person. They stand out like a sore thumb. You can see them a mile away. But when someone's just going through the motions and when they're just playing church, you don't even know whether or not they're really saved. And what Paul did is he would go and he would say, you know, let me ask you a question. I love you. I'm not saying this because I'm trying to be offensive. I'm just, I need to ask you a question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Did you receive power? You know, if I want to, I can ride a bicycle and I'll go so far. You know, I have been working out and so I mean, you know, go a few miles, man. But it's a lot different riding a bicycle than it is getting a, on a Harley Davidson. You know what I'm saying? And I remember when I used to mow the lawn and I had, you know, a big lawn and I'd push it. And you know, you're sweating, and part of you is thinking it's good for you, and part of you thinking it's not. I might die of a heart attack right here. You know, but then you get those lawnmowers where you pull the lever. Isn't it amazing? They just, oh, they just take off. And God is saying, that's what I want to give you in your life. This is why you keep failing. This is why you keep knocking your head against the same wall over and over and over again, because you don't have the power of God in your life. And so when you believe, you have an opportunity to receive the power of God. And it just breaks my heart to see so many Christians putt-putting around the world and they have no power. They have no hunger for the Bible. They have no desire to get on their face and pray. They barely make it to church every once in a while. When God is saying, I have so much more for you. And so you have to ask yourself that question. Be honest. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? These guys weren't even saved, so they had to get saved. Paul baptized them, and you only baptize people who are Christians, right? 
I mean, you can only baptize believers. Remember in Acts chapter 8, 36 and 37, you know, when Philip was there ministering to the Ethiopian eunuch, sharing the Lord Jesus Christ with him. It says, now as they went down the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. You see, you know, baptism doesn't save you. Belief in your heart saves you. Faith, which is true trust in the finished work of Christ, saves you. And then after you're saved, you can be baptized. You know, the Ethiopian eunuch, he believed that Jesus was the Christ, the anointed one, prophet, priest, and king, that he was the son of God. And so therefore he was saved, he was baptized, right? And so we don't baptize people unless they're saved. That's what Paul does in verse 5, but he doesn't stop there. Look at verse 6, and when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now, the men were about 12 in all. And the word 12 is the number of government. The word 12 here is really testifying to us of the fact that God is about to establish a new, wonderful, glorious work there in the city of Ephesus. And, and, and what you find, you guys, is, is that the, the Holy Spirit, and some of you know this, uh, I would say, but most of you probably have, I don't know if you've heard this or not, but the Holy Spirit is first with you prior to when you're a Christian, and then when you become a Christian, he comes in you to live inside of you, but then subsequent to that, uh, he comes upon you. And I want to show you a few scriptures, and you guys can maybe uh, turn to them or write them down. This way you know exactly what the Bible teaches. And so the first passage I want to turn to is John chapter 14. When Jesus was giving his final words, and remember, when someone's about to die, they give the most important message, right? And this is what you need to hear in John chapter 14. Notice in verse 16, Jesus said, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper. How many of you here need help? Just out of curiosity. I will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit, he's the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. And so the Greek word uh, for with is para. He's with you now, Jesus said, and he's going to be in you. He's now talking future tense. The Greek word is in. And so prior to becoming a Christian, the Holy Spirit is with you. He's around you. He's convicting you, convincing you of your need for Jesus. You know, that's why, you know, he begins to draw you and he begins to convict you of sin and tell you, you know, certain things that before maybe you didn't realize. And so, you know, prior to becoming a Christian, he's with you. But at the moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit comes and lives it lives inside of you. That's where we read in uh, John chapter 20, in verse 22. Since we're in John, we, we might as well turn there. Notice what we read in John 20, 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. 
And so to breathe on them, to, to breathe on them, think about that. When the Lord first breathed into man, he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And that's what happened with the apostles at that moment. The Holy Spirit was with them, but then he breathed on them and they received the Holy Spirit and they were given the spiritual life. And now think about this. Your body is the temple of God. He lives in you. And so the Lord told them, he's with you, he's going to be in you. And that's why 1 Corinthians 6.19 says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? And so the Holy Spirit's in you, now we're the temple of God. But it doesn't end there, because look what happens in Luke chapter 24. After Jesus had risen from the dead, you know, you would figure, well, now the Holy Spirit's in them. Now he's going to tell them to go and do the work of the ministry. But he says, no, don't, don't go yet. Look in Luke 24, 49. He says, behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. And you might want to circle the word upon because that's the key. He said, tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power. From on high. For 10 straight years, I got high. For 10 straight years, I was drinking. I started drinking when I was younger. I mean, how many of us here, you know, can testify to the fact that prior to becoming a Christian, we received no power, but then when he came upon us, it was completely different. And so the Lord here, he says to them, wait in Jerusalem, don't go anywhere Wait until you receive power from on high. It's the promise of the Father. So you go over to the book of Acts, chapter 1. And in verse 8, it says, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You see, the, the, the God, Lord said, I don't want you going anywhere. I don't want you doing anything. I don't want you to try to serve in your own flesh. I want you to wait for the power and the person of the Holy Spirit. And you know in Acts chapter 2, that's exactly what happened, is they're praying in the upper room for 10 days on their face, praying, asking, praying, knocking, praying, seeking, praying, hungering, praying, thirsting, praying, longing. For more than just a typical, casual, nominal Christianity, praying for all of God to fall on them. As they were there, 120 of them in the upper room, the Holy Spirit descended as a rushing, mighty wind with flames of fire, tongues of fire over their head. And then the church was born. You see, and this is what we need today from that point forth. They continuously were filled with the Holy Spirit. That's why you read in Ephesians 5 and verse 18, and don't be drunk with wine in which is a wasted life, but be filled or under the influence of the Holy Spirit. When we were drunk, the, the stuff that we drank, the vodka, the tequila, the beer, whatever it was, it made us a different person. We did things that we probably normally wouldn't do. But when you're under the influence of the Holy Spirit, the same is true, but now it's a completely different kingdom that you're serving in. And this is what we need. 
You know, a while back, I remember a brother, he came forward for prayer, and God filled him up with the Holy Spirit. And then I remember, man, he was telling me, man, I feel different. God's changed my life. God came in. God gave me power. I already knew the Lord, but now I feel his strength. But what happened was he wasn't filled up with the Holy Spirit. He didn't continue to seek the Lord, and then it fizzled out. And maybe you're here, and you're like, well, I have been baptized with the Holy Spirit, but let me ask you, have you been filled with the Holy Spirit? You got to continue to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And as you are, it's a completely different life. That, that's how the, the church in, in, in Acts started, and that's how the church in Ephesus started as well. You know, when you look at this, and even throughout church history, you'll find that this is the key to life. I mean, you look at someone like D.L. Moody, and he was already heavily involved in ministry. But the day that the Holy Spirit came upon him, it changed everything. You know, I was reading story after story. There's a book out there. It's called When They, F- they Found the Secret. And it's the same thing about how it's one thing for the Holy Spirit to come in you, but it's another thing for the Holy Spirit to come upon you. And when he comes upon you, he gives you power. And it's, it's kind of funny how it works, but, you know, you got you to gotta pray. You got to believe. You know, in, in Luke chapter 11, I think it would be good to turn there. Luke 11 And the, and, and the chapter is, is about prayer, but, but look at verse 19. So Jesus says, I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and to him who knocks it will be open. Now, in the Greek language, it's a present tense imperative, which means keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking, right? And so he says in verse 11, if a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he give him a scorpion? Imagine that one day your kid asks for, hey, dad, can I have some eggs? You know, and instead of giving him eggs, you give him a scorpion. The scorpion bites him and kills him or something. I mean, what kind of a father would do that, right? And so he says right here, if this is the way it is, of course not. And then he says in verse 13, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? You guys ever have a problem like, like man, I, I know this brother. He's a cool brother. I just don't know what to give him. You know, he has everything, it seems like. He does, you know, I, I don't know what he needs. And, and our father, you know, he knows what we need. He knows that we need the Holy Spirit. And if you ask today, if you seek, if you knock, then you will find. And the father will give us the Holy Spirit if we ask. And that's so important for us to understand Because in Ephesus, there were 12 men who didn't even know the Lord. They were disciples of John. They were not yet disciples of Christ. But Paul shows up, they get saved, and the work begins. What if, what if there were just 12 men in this church who said, that's me, God. Today, I'm going to step forward, and I'm going to ask you to fill me with your Holy Spirit. Or what if there were 12 women? Or what if there were 24? What if all of us? came to that place and saying, Lord, I need you, you know, but, but it, it's kind of interesting how it works. And, you know, I'm just telling you straight out, man, you know, you, you got, 
you know, there's questions and people have about this and theological, you know, discussions about pneumatology and all that kind of stuff. And, well, wait a minute, I thought you got it all when you're saved. And so this is what we believe. But at the end of the day, the way that it works is not just how much of the Holy Spirit do you have, but how much of you does he have? Have you given him all of your life? You know, it'd be, and I, we talked about this before, it'd be like a pen. Imagine you pick up your pen out of the drawer and you want to write something uh, with it. But let's just say the pen started fighting you, man. It started like wanting to go in a different direction. You know, pens don't normally do that. Aren't they completely yielded to the hands of the master? They have no fight of their own. They have no necessarily will of their own that would be contrary to the one in whose hands they are. This is the way it should be for us. Yielded to the Lord, broken of our own will, hungering and thirsting after Him, and not hungering and thirsting after the things of this world. It breaks my heart again because I see so many Christians, and I know it. I'm not a, I'm not a prophet. I'm not God. I don't know everything, but I know enough to know when someone is filled up with the things of this world and not the things of God. And, and if that's you, then today my prayer is that you would lay it all down, that you would be honest with God. And you would confess that reality of the fact that you don't have the fire. You don't have the Holy Spirit ruling over your life. It's hard enough to get you to open up your Bible or to get on your knees or to make it to church. And there's a lot that maybe aren't here today that should be. And all he's saying today, just like a, a, a child with a father, just ask, just seek, just knock and watch what I will do in your life. You see, this is a, the special work when you, when you look at God moving in, in, a, in a mighty way in a revival. The first thing you're going to see is the spirit of God. Okay, the second thing you're going to see, and we see it here in Ephesus, is after the spirit then is the scriptures. Because look back, if you would, at Acts 19, and, and look at verse 8. Because the Spirit of God will always use the Word of God. And so we read in Acts 19, in verse 8, And he went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some who were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. If you go down to verse 20, I just want to show you guys that verse real quick. Notice what it says, so the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. You know, one of the signs that you'll see of a spirit-filled believer, according to Acts 4 verse 31, is they're going to speak the word of God with boldness. Not just speaking in tongues, but speaking the word of God in boldness. And that's what Paul does here in Ephesus for three whole months. He's teaching the Bible and this apostle of God under the anointing of the Spirit of God shared the Word of God. 
And he was reasoning with them and persuading with them concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But as he's there sharing, think about it now for three months, some were hardened. And not only did they not believe, they began to oppose and spoke evil of the way, which is Christianity. And so Paul had to make that decision to then withdraw from the synagogue. Because the Bible says in Matthew 7, verse 6, Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. And so in that atmosphere, I don't think Paul was necessarily worried about himself being torn in pieces, but he probably was caring and concerned for the disciples. And so he pulls them out of the synagogue. But here's the cool thing, because God had better plans. You know, when you're sincere and you're filled with the Spirit of God, you want to share the Word of God, He might close one door, but it's only because He wants to open up another. And that's what happened in Ephesus, because moving out of the synagogue then gave Him a platform to teach in a public place, not simply on the Sabbath day, once a week, but every day there in the school of Tyrannus. Now, we don't know who this guy is, Tyrannus. Uh, He was uh, apparently, some say, a wealthy believer who permitted Paul to use his establishment uh, during the hours where it wasn't in use. I don't know if you guys knew this or not, but in in this climate in the Mediterranean, they would actually go to work at 6 in the morning, and then they would go from 6 to 11, and then they would go home and take a nap. Didn't that sound cool? And so from 11 to 4, the building would be available, right? And so after the 4 o'clock, then they would probably come. And some say they may work till maybe 10 at night. I don't know. But, um, but during those hours, more than likely, this was Paul's schedule. He was a tent maker. We're going to see that later because he's working. There's a sweatband. There's aprons. And so he's working. And then from 11 to 4, every single day, he's teaching in the school of Tyrannus, and he does it for two years, and God does an absolutely amazing work, so much so that this facility, which may have been donated, uh, maybe he didn't have to pay, or maybe he got a good deal on it, would explain his words to the Corinthians, because when he wrote the letter to the Corinthians from Ephesus, he says in 1 Corinthians 16, 8 and 9, but I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, He says, for a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. And so this was probably part of that great and effective door that had opened to him, that he used the hall during its off-peak hours, and his gospel was then able to reach out to a broader crowd. And Paul preached to men and women during the afternoons. Maybe in the evening, he would go to their homes. During the morning, he would work. And for the next two years, this would be his headquarters, and the gospel would go out into all Asia. You guys know in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, when the the Holy Spirit, uh, Jesus is writing to the churches in Asia, they all started because of the work that God did in Ephesus. And so the word of the Lord, it spread. And altogether, when you read Acts 20, verse 31, Paul actually spent three years in Ephesus. And so you're wondering, well, how does a church grow or how do I grow? I don't know if you want to grow. Hopefully you guys aren't one of those where you're content. You're going to kick back and, you know, slack off. No, I want to grow in the spirit of God and then then the word of God. 
And when that happens, when there is the Spirit and there is true Scripture, there is the Scripture, God will do a good work. God will save you. Um, God will keep you. You know, some of you here, I know you're hurting. You're going through hard times, and this is what you need. You know, I don't know if you guys read that story about that Indonesian uh, teenager. Uh, recently, uh, he was uh, out to sea. I guess he was working. I don't know how at all, at all. I don't know the details of it, but he would he would work on this raft. It was kind of a lighthouse, and um, and one day the the winds blew it and the moorings broke, and so he drifted out into sea, and he was out drifting in sea for 49 days. Think about that. So he's out to sea. He's got a little radio that's not really helpful at the end of the day. You know, he's got some food, but he runs out of food eventually. And so he starts fishing for fish. And thank God there were a few that he was able to catch and eat. He would drink the salt water by filtering it through his clothes because he knew that the, you know, full salt would kill him. But as he's out there, 49 days, think about it, all those days, big ships passing by, but none of them, you know, are able to see him. And he's getting these thoughts that he just wants to die. He just wants to die. 19-year-old, right? But you know what else he had? He had a Bible. Think about that. And as he's out there for 49 days, and I don't know if you guys can relate to that or you're maybe thinking, well, no, that wouldn't be that big of a deal. No, that's a huge thing, right? And, and getting those thoughts, go, wanting to go crazy, wanting to lose it all. Man, whenever he would reach that point, you know what he would do? He would reach for his Bible and he would, and he would read his Bible and it would encourage him in the ways of the Lord, you see? And that's why I'm telling you, the Spirit of God will use the Word of God and then you will see God work, whether it's being God to, to save you out of the crazy situations that you're in or to move you in the next direction that you need to go. And, and that's what we see here because then when the Spirit of God is moving like this and you got 12 guys that are baptized with the Holy Spirit and they're probably going out to other guys and the first thing they say to them is, hey, how you doing? Hey, what's your name? Fred. Hey, Fred, I'm Manny. Let me ask you a question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Are you baptized in the Holy Spirit? Boom, let's talk about this. I mean, I know the Dodgers are on this thing right now. We want to talk a little bit about them or whatever. You know, there are other situations going on in life, but none more important than this. Let me ask you a question. Do you have power or not? And that's where it's at. And as a result of that, the Spirit of God taking the Word of God, they're teaching every day there in the school of Tyrannus. It's going out to the people. Churches are being started. God is doing such a great work. And you see it next. After the Spirit, then the Scriptures, then the signs. Because look what we read next in verse 11 of Acts 19. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them you're going to see evidence of God moving when people are filled with the Spirit of God and they love the Word of God and they're teaching it with the love of God. And you're going to see things happen. You know, unusual miracles, things that cannot be explained. 
I mean, and the only way that we can see this all happening is Paul there. Again, he's making tents. He's working hard. He's got the handkerchief. And this word right here in the, in the Greek language would be of a handkerchief that he would wipe his sweat with. And there he is with his apron. He's not making tortillas. At least I don't think he is. You know, he's working there, right? And so he takes off his apron and he goes down, you know, to teach later. And then the, the guys, they see it. They're like, hey, that's Paul's stuff, right? And so they, they rob him. I mean, think about it. They take him, his handkerchief, his apron, and they go and they show it to other people. And they say, hey, this belongs to the apostle Paul. And so as a result of that, them drawing out their faith, what ends up happening, it says, this is crazy, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases left them. And, and you know, I know some televangelists nowadays, they take this and they try to use it for their own. Yeah, let me uh, wipe my head and I'll, you give me $100 and I'll send you this, you know, handkerchief and then it'll heal you. No, no. You know what, my friend? Paul was, was sweating intensely in the tent shop. They're making tents, working, laboring with his own hands. It was a labor of love. That's the kind of sweat that would bring healing. And of course, I don't think it was necessarily his sweat, but I think it's a combination of that man and their faith and the Holy Spirit working so that number one, there's physical healings. Number two, there's demonic exorcisms and declarations and confirmations and manifestations. Look at verse 12 again. And the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jews, exorcists, took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, we exorcise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. Also, there were seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish priest who did so, and the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and notice fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. I mean, the, 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 the signs, you know, the, the healings at the hand of a handkerchief, an apron, and then you've got demons that are being exorcised and you've got demons that are making manifestations and declarations and you've got these guys who are, who are wannabes, who are counterfeits, who don't really know the Lord, but they know that there's something real going on over there at that church, that name of Jesus, there's something about that. So they go and they try to exorcise demons as well and what ends up happening is the demons say, Jesus I know, Paul I know, you I don't know. And there's something about being known in heaven that, that's really cool. You know, God knows my name. My, it's written in the book of life. But let me tell you something. There's something also in this sense about being known in hell. Because you're making a difference. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised, and you guys probably know this as well, that Satan, I wouldn't be surprised if he didn't have board meetings. He probably had board meetings with his demons to say, how are we going to stop this guy? He was known in heaven, Paul was known in hell. And we should be too. We should be too. They, they should know who you are. Why? Because you're making a difference. You guys, I beg of you, please don't live 
a half-hearted Christian life. I think it's time where God's saying, I want all of you, and you, you want all of me, and I know you do, right? We're talking about the Holy Spirit, but I want all of you. You're not going to receive the very power that you need until you come to that place of absolute surrender. And then you see the the Spirit of God, and you see the Scriptures, and then you see the signs. Look at verse 18. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. Also many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver in today's money it'd probably somewhere around seven million dollars and so the word of the lord grew mightily and prevailed and and you can we can look back as a church we can look back as you know congregationally we can look back individually and i don't know what it's been like you know up to this point in your life But what I'm asking now is that we look forward. We look forward and say, this, Lord, is what we want. We want the Holy Spirit to make us holy. We want the power and the person of Almighty God. Lord, we want you and we want your word and we'll teach your word. Under that anointing of the Holy Spirit, Lord, please give weight to our words because the help of man, I don't care who the man is, the help of man is useless. Lord, you love these people, and I know they're struggling, and I know they're in a war, and they're fighting it tooth and nail, and some of them, Lord, they're not doing too good, and so, Lord, come, show up today and fill their hearts with your power because when you show up, Lord, there's this, there are healings, there's demonic manifestations because we know there's a war going on, but then there's genuine conversions. And there in Ephesus, where they were so caught up in magic and sorcery and all that kind of stuff, they took their books and they burned them. They didn't put them up in storage. They didn't sell them to someone later. No, they burned them. I remember when I got saved, I'll never forget, I still remember, I got all my cassettes. Some of you know what cassettes are, but... (laughs) All my cassettes, all my Black Sabbath, all my Van Halen, all my Dio, all the devil stuff, man. And I, and I burned it because that's the work that God does in our life. Listen, it went in doubt, throw it out. I don't want anything to get in the way. You got sorcery in your house. You got things that don't belong. Burn it. Don't learn it. It's crazy what we see here and today. And a lot of times we got kids, you know, with the Ouija boards and Dungeons and Dragons and all that kind of stuff. Listen, run from that stuff. Burn it. What ends up happening is God does a good work. This is genuine conversions. When you're saved, when you're really saved, these are the things that you do. You confess your sins and you don't play games any longer. Amen?